Hi, I'm Larry Castle here with Ken Brown for That's a Good Question, episode 36, Why Are Christians So Divided? Part 2. Well, welcome everyone. Pastor Ken, welcome to our new podcasting environment here. Uh, you all probably noticed something's different. We, uh, we had a nice looking background before in our offices with the books and such, but my, uh, my wife told me one day that they're so similar. She was watching and it looked like she couldn't see the line between us. It looked like we were kind of snuggled up together. And so I immediately began plans for a new space for us to do this in. No, we, uh, we really were looking for a more permanent space so that we wouldn't have to set up and tear down every week. And uh, so very thankful. You wouldn't know it, but this was a storage area. And we had uh, Aaron Kinder come in and put in some paneling for us. He did a great job. Very, Mm -hmm. very grateful for that. And uh, we had uh, some consultation from one of our video experts, Gordon Castelnero. And Sandra Gorm came in with some great aesthetic advice. And we ended up with a really nice space to do our podcast in. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll be putting this to good use. So in the next year, we've got some video projects uh, to be Mm -hmm. able to create features for offertories, uh, things like testimonies, ministry highlights, missionary focus, and so we'll put the space to good use. So we are continuing what we began last week. Uh, The topic, the question that we were addressing uh, is why are Christians so divided? But as we get into the explanation of that, we're finding that really it's answering the question, why are there so many denominations? So um, why don't you remind our viewers what we covered last week to pick up where we left off? Well, we said that uh, one example of why Christians are so divided is that we too often raise extra-biblical issues. When we say extra-biblical, we mean issues not found in the Bible itself. We raise those to biblical status, and then we require that everybody adhere to those. Now, we discussed some of those extra-biblical issues in an episode a few weeks ago. It was episode 29, and it was titled, How Does the Church Avoid Distraction? And we said last week that these are issues that unnecessarily divide us because they take things that are not commanded in the Bible and they elevate them to required standards of conduct for all of God's people. And over the years, these have become legalistic rules over matters like, for example, music. Now, that doesn't mean music is unimportant or that there are not principles in the Bible that should guide our choice of music perhaps especially the music that we use when we gather together in church, there are indeed principles, but not precepts. Precepts are direct commands that guide exactly what we're to do on a particular topic. We just don't have that. Now, we've not always uh, in our churches been good about allowing people space for disagreement on application of biblical principles. On issues like we listed last week, things like modesty or how you should go about parenting or politics. I mean, believe it or not, there are churches that are devoted to these kinds of things, Mm -hmm. and some people will even shun those who disagree on them. There are churches that say women can never wear slacks, always got to be a dress or a skirt, sometimes culottes. Culottes. Oh, (laughs) culottes. That's my daughter's love culottes. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) And then even, you know, on parenting, there are churches that teach only homeschooling. Hmm being the proper method of education so all the families in the church homeschool. And then sometimes in churches like that, in addition to the homeschooling, there's an aversion to any age-specific ministry. So in the view of these folks, churches should, shouldn't have things like Sunday schools or youth ministries, and the children should always be together with their parents. Now, over the years, you and I have observed that, in fact, uh, often too much segregation of the young people from the adult membership of the church uh, is in fact the case. And and that deprives our young people of the good influence of older folks in the church. And therefore we've sought to ensure that there are times when the young and the old mix together, but it hasn't led us to disavow Sunday school or, or teen ministry. And so I said over the years, and I said last week that we don't have to arrive at the same conclusions on these matters of application and preference, but we do need to ask the same questions. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. 
So those are differences that um, are about things that are not directly addressed in the Bible. Um, but Christians differ over things that are addressed in the Bible, differences over doctrinal issues like baptism, um, like end times. So why do we differ over things that are directly in the Bible? Yeah, we said last week that there are a relative handful of matters that are in the Bible, and we just don't have enough information about the original context to know what they mean. I gave the example of the lone mention in the entire Bible of baptism for the dead. Hmm. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. And to be honest, we just don't know what that, that is. But those instances are very few. And unless someone wants to take one line like that and elevate it to a major doctrine, which in fact is what cults will often do. Hmm. Cults will take some obscure thing and they will make it a, a major thing. Uh, it's my understanding that that's what the Mormons do with baptism for the dead. Mm -hmm. But unless you do something like that, then none of these obscure matters affects what the core uh, of Christian belief is. We said back in episode 21 and in 22, we, we called those episodes, isn't that just your interpretation? And we made the case there that our different interpretations are not, and this, this is something I just really want folks to get, it's not because the Bible is hopelessly obscure. Mm -hmm. But it's rather because we don't play by the same set of rules. And we laid out what those rules really need to be and why they're necessary to interpret not just the Bible, but any communication. Now, another reason that we're divided is due to tradition. Mm. Old habits die hard. If you're raised in a particular way, then you're going to tend to read the Bible with a bias in that particular direction. I mentioned last week I was raised in the Pentecostal church that my father pastored, and I saw him, and I saw people that I love engage in what's called speaking in tongues. Uh, they would speak in non-languages, and they were believed to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. These were utterances that neither they nor the hearers understood, but were thought to be from God. So as a result of me seeing that over years as a child and as a teenager, when I would read the phrase speaking in tongues in the Bible, for years, my mind would automatically go to what I had seen in, in my church. And so I interpreted the Bible in light of my tradition. Mm. It took me years, many years, to be able to step back and look at those passages more objectively rather than reading into it my, my tradition. Yeah, you made, you made the point uh, last week that there's your personal tradition mm -hmm. and uh, how you're raised— and traditions, like you said today, die hard. And that's one reason that many uh, just stay with something that they've come, you know, they've come about by misinterpretation in the first place, not playing by sound rules of interpretation. But you also mentioned another category of tradition. So remind our viewers about that. Yeah, I said that uh, there is what I call tradition with a small T, and that's the kind of tradition I just mentioned, the, what you grow up with and what you're shaped by. But then there's tradition with a, a capital T. Uh, again, the tradition in the small t sense is just what a person has known, how they were raised. But tradition in the capital T sense is actually a doctrine in itself. It's what the church teaches. In particular, tradition with a capital T is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Because in Roman Catholic teaching, tradition is sacred. And it's actually equivalent in authority to Scripture itself. Now, I made that claim last week and wanted to make sure that we prove that. And mm -hmm. uh, so I read last week from an official Roman Catholic teaching on this matter. And I think it's important enough that it bears repeating that at the Vatican II Council, just over 50 years ago, in the, uh, in the 60s, the Roman Catholic Church said this. Uh, there exists, I'm quoting now, there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture. For sacred scripture is the word of God inasmuch as it's consigned to writing under the inspiration of the divine spirit. While sacred tradition takes the word of God entrusted by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit to the apostles and hands it on to their successors in its full purity, so that, led by the light of the Spirit of truth, they may, in proclaiming it, preserve this word of God faithfully, explain it, and make it more widely known. Consequently, now follow this, it is not from sacred scripture alone 
that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. Hmm. So that that's why you find Roman Catholic in Roman Catholicism uh, beliefs that are not in Scripture, but you have to believe them if you're a faithful Catholic just as much as anything that is in Scripture, right? That's that's exactly that's exactly right. So we saw last week, for instance, one such belief is what's called the Assumption of Mary, hmm. that she was assumed bodily into heaven. Uh, after she died, if in fact she died at all. I mentioned last week Roman Catholicism silent on whether or not Mary actually died. Now, in the Bible, whether you have the Protestant Bible or the Catholic Bible, the Catholic Bible just very quickly has seven additional books attached to the Old Testament, not the New Testament, the Old Testament. Uh, but in either one of those, and, and I won't spend time now talking about why those seven books are actually not part of the Bible, but it makes no difference for all of the doctrines related to Mary, because those seven additional books don't have anything about Mary in them. Uh, there is literally nothing in the Protestant Bible or the Catholic Bible, nothing said about the last days of Mary's life. So anything about her being assumed into heaven has to be found outside of the Bible because it's nowhere within the Bible. That's an example of a doctrine that belongs to tradition, capital T, and it has to be believed on penalty of hell. And we saw that those traditions, things that are not found in the Bible but are nevertheless just as binding as those that are, those teachings are not based on the authority of Scripture but on the authority of tradition, tradition with a capital T. Now, how did that, how did that happen? We started to talk about that last week, that the church entered a kind of danger zone in the second century because the go-to guys, we kind of joked, you know, <laughs> who are you going to call? Right? <laughs> Who are you going to call for heresy, false Wait, teaching? One of our viewers actually emailed us about that and said that, like me, they were relieved that we talked about Ghostbusters because it popped into their mind too. Who are you going to call? Heres heresy, heresy busters. busters. <laughs> we should get t-shirts made. <laughs> were the heresy busters? The apostles were the heresy busters. Mm -hmm. You know, if you had a if a problem that needed to be straightened out in the church, they were the God-given authorities to do that, and so they would keep the church on the straight and narrow. But they're now gone. After the first century, they've all died, and yet false teaching is not gone. Mm -hmm. It still persists, as it does today. So, you know, on whom or on what are you going to turn now when the apostles are gone to address it? The ultimate authority should have been what one second century Christian called the memoirs of the apostles. Mm -hmm. That is, the writings of the apostles, the scripture. Now, the early church, after the first century, did in fact give great weight and usually highest honor to what Scripture said. Uh, I give numerous quotes to that effect in a series that we've done uh, at our church. Uh, it's been several years now, but we did one called What's the Difference? I love that series. And you it's can different. find that on our, our website, and I would encourage uh, those who have the time and the interest to look that up. I'll link to that in this video, in fact. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent, yes. And you can also find those quotes and more in a three-volume series of books called Holy Scripture, and that's by author David King, Holy Scripture by David King. And you can buy those separate volumes. Uh, one of the volumes is devoted to what the early church taught about the authority of Scripture. So those of you that are budding historians can, can look that up. So, so most looked to the Scripture, the writings of the apostles, for their authority in the years following the first century, mm -hmm. but you're saying some did not. You, you did have some in the second century who elevated the role of a person, the bishop, mm -hmm. to a status above the local church. And so the bishop, rather than being what the New Testament describes it as, the New Testament describes a bishop as a pastor of a local church. Uh, and that's not just speculation. I mean, that's on my part. That's not just my opinion. That is just the fact of the matter, that you have passages where the word that's translated bishop is in the very same passage used of, of a pastor. Mm -hmm. And so pastor and bishop are the same person mm -hmm. in the New Testament. You find that in Acts chapter 20. You find it in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 5. So, but what began to develop was, instead of the bishop slash pastor, same person, being the leader of a local congregation, 
the bishop began to preside over churches, plural, mm -hmm. an official outside and above the local assembly. And so people began to look to that person. That would be what an apostle was. An apostle was mm -hmm. outside the, and above the church. So these bishops now are being treated in a kind of quasi-apostolic way. They were, in fact, deemed to be the successors of the apostles. And so you not only had apostolic authority, which the church needed and needs, and that should have come from Scripture. We have the apostles' authority found in what they wrote. But you not only had that, you now had apostolic succession. Mm -hmm. And that was vested in individuals. Now, with the establishment of the notion of apostolic succession, it was just a short step to the recognition of a supreme bishop, hmm. a bishop of bishops. And the most likely candidate for a number of reasons was the bishop of, of Rome. So let me just take a, take a bit and describe some history that, that led to that and made the bishop of Rome the prime candidate. Yeah, this is very helpful history. If you've never heard it, this is the part. Stop, pause, get something to drink, sit down, pay close attention. Very helpful stuff right here. Well, you know, as we go to the early centuries of Christianity, one of the, the main uh, events is the conversion of someone named Constantine, uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine. And he is converted, whether he was genuinely converted, born again to Christianity, or not uh, is not the point for for this lesson, but he uh, he became a Christian, uh, at least in the sense that I'm going to describe here. In the year 312 AD, 312 AD, he's in a battle, and he's it's called the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. So you can Google all of this, those of you <laughs> that care about it. The Battle of the Milvian Bridge, 312 AD. But he said that he saw a sign in the sky in the shape of a cross, and it said, at this sign, conquer. And he took that to mean that God, and in particular Christ, because of the cross, was on his side. And lo and behold, he goes, he goes on to mm -hmm. win the battle. Mm -hmm. So this is evidence to him that Christ is real, and therefore he becomes a, a Christian. So in the following year, 313 AD, is this famous document called the Edict of Milan. And Constantine, in this edict, makes Christianity not the favored religion, but now a legal religion. Uh, well, that was a huge change, because in the Roman Empire for the first two centuries of Christianity, hmm. uh, if you find it in the Bible in the first century, and then the century that followed, the second century, you know, it was an outlawed religion, and it was a persecuted. All the, all the passages about how to deal with persecution. Exactly, yeah. or about yeah. that. So now he makes it a, a legal religion. And so after his conversion to Christianity, uh, Christianity moved what one historian said was swiftly from the seclusion of the catacombs to the prestige of the palaces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The movement started... That sounds familiar to me. Cairns. Oh, yeah. No, actually, I was going to say it just reminds me of uh, politics in our country a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, another, yeah. That's another episode. Okay. Don't get, me in the, don't get me going on that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, this historian said that the movement, Christianity, started the fourth century. Now, when we say fourth century, we need to remember we're talking about the 300s. So it started mm -hmm. the 300s. Before the Edict of Milan, before the Milvian Bridge, all of that, it started it as a persecuted minority, but it ended the 300s uh, as the established religion. By the end of the 300s, Christianity is now the established religion of the empire. Hmm. So think about the monumental changes that take place. Right. <clears throat> you now have the Christian church joined to the power of the Roman state, and it assumed the church did a moral responsibility for the whole society. So to serve the state now, this is important, historically, it refined its doctrine and it developed its structure. Mm -hmm. The church redefined its doctrine and developed its structure. So now the church becomes Roman. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought about, when we talk about the Roman Catholic Church, have you ever thought about the Roman piece of that? Mm. <laughs> I mean, we all know that the Vatican is located it's in Rome. It's so familiar to us, we don't probably right. think about that. We don't think about it. Yeah. The Vatican's located in Rome, but why is it located in Rome? Mm -hmm. Well, it's going back to what I'm, I'm saying here. Yeah. And now you have the emperor in Constantine. He becomes the number one lay person in the church. 
So think about how now that practically changes what the church does. I described last week the simple way that a Sunday would go mm -hmm. and the kinds of things that would take place. Well, that's no longer sufficient. Mm -hmm. So now the, the pomp and the circumstance of the imperial court mm -hmm. is adapted to honor the emperor of emperors. So you get you know, you know, the processionals and the lights and the special dress and all these other elements added to now that grand. It's intriguing to think about because I, I think about, you know, if the president were going to visit mm -hmm. our church, mm -hmm. you know, what would we do differently? And so you can yeah. imagine it's, it might be easy for us to sit here and say, well, it's just church. You just mm -hmm. do what you're doing. But, mm -hmm. well, if we had a dignitary coming, would we, yeah. and if we had the dignitary lifting up Christianity in general in the land, mm -hmm. you can see how easily it would be to fall into and, that. And yeah, we would be tempted to do that, even mm -hmm. in our setting. And mm -hmm. in our setting, the truth is the president is not revered as an emperor. Right. But Formally known as a god. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So here you have the emperor who used to be considered a god under mm -hmm. Caesar Augustus and Julius Caesar and others, right? And so now he's a Christian and mm -hmm. he's showing up at church. Mm -hmm. So how does that change things? Well, change things dramatically. So by the end of the 300s, Christianity had achieved a dominant position in the Roman Empire. And as a result of that, according to Christian History Magazine, they said this, they said, Christians felt like they could borrow cultural language and ideas <laughs> more freely than they had before. So now you have, let me give some examples of that, state involvement in church matters. Constantine ruled Christian bishops the same way he did his own servants within the, within the empire. And he demanded unconditional obedience to whatever pronouncements he made, even when they interfered with church matters. So an, an, involve, an example of that kind of involvement is seen in this famous council that took place. Just a, a 15 years, less than 15 years after Constantine is converted, you have this famous council, the Council of Nicaea. And that was in 325 A.D. Now, the purpose of this council was to address the issue of the relationship of the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Some very vocal and influential heretics were teaching that the Son, God the Son, was a created being, that he's not God from all eternity. That was a guy named Arius. Arius had this infamous statement called, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when God the Son was not. Mm. He rather was created. The council uh, denounced uh, and, and him and pronounced on this important issue. Uh, but that council and the way it was formed and the way it went about its business represented another important development, not just the issue they dealt with. But here was the thing. That council was called by the emperor. Mm. The emperor said, you guys are going to meet and settle this. <laughs> So not just what they were going over, but how they go about it. And so a precedent was set that continued for, for centuries. So you've got the state now involved in church affairs, and then you had the church involved in state affairs mm -hmm. over time. And historical events conspired to enhance the reputation of one church leader in particular, the Bishop of Rome, mm -hmm. because Rome had been the traditional center of authority of the Roman world for 500 years. It was the largest city in the West. And then get this, Constantine, in the year 330, he moves his capital from Rome to what's now modern-day Turkey, Istanbul, mm -hmm. Turkey. He moves it there. And he named it at the time, it was called, in all humility, <laughs> Constantinople. And so for centuries, that was, the that was the name of what is now Istanbul, Turkey, Constantinople. So think about what that does now. The emperor moves, moves east. And so you have the center of political gravity shifts now mm -hmm. from Rome to Constantinople. Well, that leaves a vacuum. It leaves a vacuum for the bishop of Rome. He's now the single strongest individual in Rome for long periods of time. And the people in that area came to look to him for not just spiritual leadership, but temporal leadership, political leadership, whenever there was a, a crisis that would arise. All right, so that's one development, huge. Constantine vacates Rome, hmm. leaves the bishop of Rome in, in Rome. Here's another, and this is 
amazing. <laughs> it really is. There's this thing called the pseudo Isidorian decretals. Wow. What is that? <laughs> All right. So pseudo false Isidorian. These are supposedly from someone named Isidore. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they're decretals, decrees. So the let's break that down. The false decrees of Isidore. Okay? Mm-hmm. All right, what are they? They're in the 9th century, the 800s. These come about. One of these decrees was something called the donation of Constantine. And this false document, and I'll show that it was false here in a minute, gave the Roman Catholic Church amazing power and wealth. William Webster is a guy who wrote a book that I recommend, it, again, for those of you who care about it, um, about the history piece. But he wrote a book called the, the Church of Rome at the Bar of History. The Church of Rome at the Bar of, of History. You know, the bar, we talk about the bar in a legal sense, and that's mm-hmm. what it's saying there. What's the judgment of history at the Bar of History on the Church at Rome? And so it's a, it's a history book. It's small, relatively small. It's readable. But he says this. He says, the papacy could never have emerged, the pope, the bishop of Rome, could never have emerged without a fundamental restructuring of the constitution of the church and of people's perceptions of the history of that constitution. As long as the true facts of church history were well known, it would serve as a buffer against any unlawful ambitions of some bishop. But in the ninth century, a literary forgery occurred which completely revolutionized the ancient government of the church in the West. Hmm. It provided a legal foundation for the ascendancy of the papacy in Western Christendom. This is known as the pseudo-Isidorian decretals written around 845 AD. These are a complete fabrication, Webster says, of, of church history. They set forth precedents for the exercise of sovereign authority of the popes over the universal church prior to the fourth century. So prior to the fourth century, prior to Constantine. Hmm. So here's what they're saying, is that even before Constantine, the Bishop of Rome was the guy, hmm. and he was in charge. And it made it appear that the popes had always exercised this sovereign dominion. So this is the kind of thing a, pers- a Catholic person would have in mind. I've had folks I've talked with about this. They have this in mind when they say that, no, this goes all the way back to Peter right. and first pope, and this is right. where this idea stems from. Right. Now, okay. of course, there is you know Peter and the role Peter played in the Bible sure. itself. Yeah. But then after that, in the second century and then into the third century, Time spanning the connection between. between those is falsified mm-hmm. by, by this. And so even before the fourth century, this is saying that the popes had always... Uh, recognized and had this had been recognized as having this sovereign authority over the church, even over church councils. Now, William Webster, the guy I quoted, wrote this book, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History. He's a Protestant. And so you could say, understandably, all right, he's some guy who doesn't believe it, and he's saying this stuff's a forgery, and it's all false and all of that. Here's where it gets better. <laughs> Roman Catholic historians admit this. Hmm. They freely admit this. Again, Google all of this. Hmm. Google the pseudo-Isidorian decretals. Google the donation of Constantine. So they, they recognize that these are forgeries, yes. but they represent. So maybe like how, uh, is it John 6, am I thinking? Okay. <laughs> Someone who preaches from the end of John, the longer ending. And, oh, that's uh, Mark 16 Mark, you're talking about. Sorry, yeah, Mark yeah, yeah. 16, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. John 6, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, Mark 16, you know, so you've got a longer ending that's uh, pretty apparently not historical and mm. But it really preaches. So this is that's that's a good, <laughs> rough I think analogy. That's a great analogy. No, it's a good analogy. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, these okay, these are not true, but nevertheless, the papacy thing is still true. Mm-hmm. Would be the idea. Mm-hmm. So here's Ro- a Roman Catholic historian, and a noted Roman Catholic historian, who lived in the the 1800s. And what's notable about that is it's in 1870, 1870, that the Roman Catholic Church declared the dogma of the infallibility of the Pope. 1870. Hmm. Wow. Now, because of tradition with a capital T, what they will say, this has always been taught, mm-hmm. but we just formulated it mm-hmm. in 1870. Well, this guy, this Roman Catholic historian, Johann von Dollinger, that's a cool name. <laughs> <laughs> that's a matter of opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, he, lived at that, he lived at that time. And he confirms that these documents are false, and he provides a, a summary 
of their history and their impact. Here, here's what he says. In the middle of the ninth century, about 845, as we already saw, there arose the huge fabrication of the Isidorian decretals. About a hundred about a hundred pretended decrees of the earliest popes. Notice how he says that. Mm -hmm. These pretend to be decrees of, of popes mm. from before. Together with certain go ahead. I was just gonna say that seems like something that would be condemnation worthy. <laughs> Fake decrees of a pope. <laughs> fake decree. Yeah. So the pope is faking things, or, or, or someone or made decrees. And so, I mean, if we came up with something that was Third Peter, and I really made it up, but hmm. it's supposed to be God's word, that'd be condemnation worthy, right? Indeed. And and you know, he condemns it. Mm -hmm. But like you said, he still says. But still, as a Catholic, the, the papacy is still mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. So he says that you got those the pseudo Isidorian uh, false spurious writings together with certain spurious writings of other church dignitaries and acts of synods these were fabricated and they were eagerly seized upon to be used as genuine documents in support of the new claims put forward by the pope and his successors that the pseudo isidorian principles eventually revolutionized the whole constitution of the church and introduced a new system in place of the old on that point, there can be no controversy among candid historians. Wow. Hmm. Right? So this is a Roman Catholic saying this. Yeah. So the most potent instrument of this new papal system was, and thanks for staying with me on this, but was something called uh, Gratian's Decretum. I need a notebook to write all these big <laughs> names down. <laughs> Gratian's uh, Decretum. Right. In, in this work... Now, the Isidorian forgeries were combined with those of others, and this one displaced all the other older collections of canon law, and they became the manual from which theologians, for the most part, derived their knowledge of the church fathers and of councils. Hear, this, hear, hear what's, said, what's said about this. No book has ever come near it in its influence in the church although there's scarcely another so chock full of gross errors, both intentional and unintentional. That's by a Roman Catholic. Wow. <laughs> that is amazingly candid. Uh, you know, m many Christians don't know history like that, and, and that keeps us from seeing where some of what we see today comes from, yeah, right? absolutely. And that lack of historical knowledge not only blinds us to where things that we see today came from, it also sometimes gives an advantage to those who quote the so-called church fathers mm. to support their view that the Roman Catholic Church is the true church. If you're not careful, you can be mesmerized by the history if you don't realize it's built on some of these forgeries mm -hmm. uh, and, and built on these forgeries as an historical matter of fact. That is a fact, an indisputable fact that it's built on these, these forgeries. So let me give an example of the kind of sleight of hand that has to take place in order for appeals to the church fathers to work in favor of Roman Catholicism. So here's a guy, again from the 1800s, a guy named John Henry Newman, became a cardinal within the Roman Catholic Church. The reason he is so celebrated within Roman Catholicism is because he was a convert to Catholicism from Protestantism. Mm -hmm. And they quote him incessantly. In particular, they quote him with this quote, to go deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. Hmm. So the, the claim is if you really know your history, you just can't be a Protestant because mm -hmm. it's all on the side of we Roman Catholics. Uh, not quite, okay? Not if you look at the pseudo-Isidorian decretals, the donation of God, all that, all that stuff. And if you go far enough back. <laughs> and if you go far enough back, like all the way to the Bible, yeah. <laughs> in fact, yeah. right? So, but Newman, Newman knew that. Mm -hmm. Newman knew, knew the history. He knew about the, the forgeries. He knew all of that. So he came up with something, and he is celebrated. He is actually known, not just for that quote, but more for this, something called the Doctrine of Development. Hmm. He argued that all of these later Roman doctrines and practices, like the infallibility of the Pope, even though it was mm -hmm. only 1870 that it was dogmatized, he said that these doctrines and practices were hidden in the church, but from the very beginning. Hmm. They were just made explicit. They just developed. That's what this idea of 
the development of doctrine mm-hmm. comes from. They were mm-hmm. developed over time, made more explicit over time under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But the problem many Roman Catholics fail to see is that there's a huge difference between development and contradiction. Yeah. It's one thing to use different language to teach something that, in fact, the church has always taught. You might use some language later to describe the Trinity. Yeah. Church has always taught the Trinity, but mm-hmm. who, you know, you didn't use till centuries later the term Trinity. Right. But that's something that was always taught in Christianity. It's another thing altogether to begin, begin teaching something the church has always denied. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the history of the church, it has always denied that there was a supreme bishop of bishops, yeah. a papal supreme pr- supremacy over other, over other pastors and, and bishops. So here's then, what do you do with that? Well, you know, one approach is Newman's approach, the development of doctrine to try to make it work. Here's another cardinal. Uh, same time frame, 1800s. So he's a contemporary of Newman. This guy is a contemporary of this decree, this dogmatic statement about the infallibility of the Pope in 1870. His name's Henry Edward Manning, Cardinal. But he says this. He says, you know what? We don't need history at all. So that's how bad it gets. You go (laughs) from history's history's all... This history track's not working. Let's shift gears. Yes. (laughs) History's all on our side. Nah, history's not on all our side, but we don't need it anyway. Hmm. This is what he says. The appeal to antiquity is treason and heresy. Wow. (laughs) And, quote, the only divine evidence to us of what was primitive, that is what was, you know, the oldest, Mm -hmm. is the witness and voice of the church at this hour. You see what he's saying? He's saying that to examine church history in order to find support for the claims of the Roman church is to demonstrate you don't have a full faith Hmm. in the church. It's to place human reason above faith in the church. If you want to know what the early church taught, all you have to do, he's saying, is look at what the Roman Catholic Church teaches today. So the impressiveness of the Roman Catholic Church's appeal to antiquity, to history, Guys and gals, our viewers, it's much more apparent than it is real once you look into it. History is on the side of those who believe the Bible, not the church, to be the final authority for faith and practice. Yeah. So how did that influence us today then, shift gears to talking about that, especially those of us who aren't a part of the Roman Catholic Church? Yeah. Well, we need to, we need to remember that the reformers, uh, sometimes called the magisterial reformers, the major reformers, I mean, there were more lesser-known reformers uh, that didn't rule uh, as reformers, mm-hmm. uh, like the well-known names. Uh, the well-known names are who? Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, of course, who is credited with starting the, the Reformation in mm-hmm. 1517. But we got to remember that all of them were Roman Catholics. Yeah. So this is how it kind of comes our way. They brought with them... It is shocking sometimes to you read something that they've written, and uh, and there's also, if you look at the modern-day denominations, there's other influences from just the original uh, founders. But, yeah, you look at the uh, things that they've written, and you're like, wow, that seems pretty Catholic. (laughs) Exactly, and there's good reason for that, because they were all former Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. So they brought with them what I call, you know, for lack of a better term, the residue of Catholicism Mm -hmm. in some areas. Now, thankfully, in the most important areas, they rejected what Roman Catholicism teaches, namely about how one establishes a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. How is one justified? How is a person saved? But they, they brought with them some of it in two key areas, uh, worship and government, liturgy mm. and, and church government. And so very quickly, liturgy or worship. You look at how Calvin, how Luther uh, looked at baptism. Mm. You look at how they looked yeah. at communion. And they, they're bringing with them the their Roman Catholicism, frankly, mm-hmm. baptizing infants. Yeah. It's not something you're going to find in the Bible. You find it nowhere in the New Testament. But it's something that developed within the Roman Catholic system. They brought that with them. It's still practiced today in the mm-hmm. denominations that have come out of that stream. Lutheranism, mm-hmm. in the case of Calvin, uh, many of our Reformed denominations, especially our Presbyterian mm-hmm. uh, friends, practice right on salvation, mm-hmm. thank the Lord. Yeah, and in 
infuse that with different meaning that fits with their soteriology. That, that's right. Yeah. Fancy term, soteriology. With that. their doctrine of salvation. <laughs> hey, you. come on, you throw out all these fancy <laughs> names. I've got to show that I went to seminary too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's not baptism usually for salvation, mm-hmm. although it depends on... Which... You know, and, and a lot of people aren't, you know, if they're not taught that, they catch that. Mm-hmm. If it's not taught, it's often caught. Yeah. You know, that you have to that you have to have this. So but but nevertheless, whatever the significance that's assigned to it, the very act of baptizing an infant is just something foreign to the Bible. Yeah. Okay. And then communion. Same mm-hmm. thing with communion. You know, in Roman Catholicism you have transubstantiation that this literally becomes the the body and blood of, of Christ. Mm-hmm. So they rejected that, but still there's this elevated view of, of communion mm-hmm. that you have consubstantiation mm-hmm. in Lutheranism. Trans, it's transformed into the elements, the body and blood. Con is his body and blood are with it. With. Yeah, yeah you're remembering well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so with and, and over, under the elements, I mean, that's actually mm-hmm. how it's mm-hmm. described. You know, and then Calvin says, nah, it's not consubstantiation, but it's the spiritual presence mm-hmm. of Christ in the, in, the ele- in the elements. Okay, Zwingli, we think, got it right biblically. You know, these are a memorial that yeah. they are remembering, baptism, communion. All right, so when you look at liturgy and worship, it's, you can see how they would carry that kind of thing with them. They, they revised it and revised it in important ways, thankfully, but nevertheless, still mm-hmm. ascribe an importance to some of these liturgical elements elements of worship that are not exactly what the Bible teaches. And then you take church government. Mm -hmm. In church government, you have authorities outside of the congregation. So you have synods Mm -hmm. within the Lutheran church. Uh, You know, the Missouri Synod, Mm -hmm. uh, the Wisconsin Synod. Uh, These are then synods that are outside and over the authority of the local church. Same thing within our Presbyterian, the Presbyterian system. Uh, You have the session you have sessions within a church, but then you have uh, the presbytery, which is a um, which is a body of elders that are over the the local church. Mm-hmm. And you know, our understanding as we look at Scripture is that the congregation, the local church, is the highest ecclesiastical authority. And within that, you have pastors slash bishops mm-hmm. slash overseers. Um, but you can see how that is residue carried over from yeah. the Roman Catholic structure. Yeah, it makes good sense when you understand it in that context. Uh, so we're, we're saying we are divided for some good reasons in the sense that we need to call out and refuse to participate mm-hmm. with error, mm-hmm. but are all errors equally serious? Mm-hmm. Yeah, v- very, yeah, thanks. Very good question. And I, I think we do need to get this straight because... The answer is no, is the short answer. Jesus himself spoke of in Matthew chapter 23, Matthew 23, he said that there are weightier matters of the law. So Jesus implicitly is saying there that there are some things that are more important than others. Uh, and, and indeed, there, there are. I mentioned salvation. Thank the Lord that you know, Luther got justification by faith uh, alone, right. And Calvin you know, has that right. And so... We can disagree then about these issues of infant baptism, but we can still be brothers and sisters in the Lord if we've come to him by faith alone because of what Christ alone has has done. So there are these weightier matters, more important matters. I like to call them um, first order doctrines. Mm -hmm. They're foundational doctrines upon which others are then built. So things like biblical authority. You know, now if you add tradition with a capital T to biblical authority, we got a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, biblical authority and and the Bible alone, sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone as our authority for faith and practice is a foundational doctrine. The person of Christ, that He is fully God and that He is fully human, that Christ died t- to pay the penalty for our sin. That is His atonement. Mm-hmm. His resurrection, that he bodily raised, and that he is going to physically return again. These are foundational issues. Yes. Uh, sounds like uh, these are fundamentals of the faith. 
So we're fundamentalists? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I say in, they're foundational. In the true historical sense. Right. Yeah. In the good sense. Right. Uh, you know, there's a bad sense, that, unfortunately, that fundamentalism has come to be known by. Mm -hmm. But in the historical sense of adherence to the fundamentals, the foundational Core doctrines teachings. of the faith, not these extra biblical things, not mm -hmm. the less weighty matters. Yeah. That gives uh, puts in mind, uh, for me, um, well, I was going to ask the question, how do we determine what's most important? Hmm. Well, one, we let's just make sure we understand that there is a difference between uh, less important and unimportant. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that these things that are less important, things that are not fundamentals, things that are not foundational, are unimportant. Mm -hmm. They're just less important than those. So the first order doctrines are foundational. Mm -hmm. Everything else is built on that. But then you've got second-order doctrines that become important depending on how they might affect the first. Mm -hmm. So here's what I mean. You know, if biblical authority is a first-order doctrine, and it most definitely is, yeah. well then, as we think about our friends, my Pentecostal background, and our friends who engage in speaking in tongues and prophecy, mm -hmm. well, how does prophecy affect our view of biblical authority? Yeah. Because if you have now people still giving revelation from God, is the Bible now the only authority? Mm -mm. You've got this in the extra authority. So that becomes now, it's a, on the one hand, you could look at it and say, okay, people speak in these languages that you know they don't understand, other people don't understand, it's kind of weird to us, all of that, but they're saved, they know the Lord, how important is it? Mm -hmm. But my point is it becomes important when it starts to touch on these, these others. Likewise, baptism. Mm -hmm. You know, if, look, if somebody believes in baptizing infants, even though you, you can't find that in the New Testament, that's an error, we believe. Mm -hmm. It becomes a real error, a weightier matter, a really important matter when you ascribe to that baptism some portion of your salvation. Mm -hmm. And you've got people who do that, not just for infants, but you've got people who, uh, in baptizing adults, say that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Yeah. And we don't believe the Bible teaches that. Or can you lose your salvation? Mm -hmm. Lots of denominations teach that. Well, if Christ's atonement is a foundational issue, then we need to ask the question, did he atone for all our sins, mm -hmm. past, present, and future? And if he atoned, if he's covered, paid the penalty for all our sins, past, present, and future, then how is it that someone could lose their salvation? Yeah. You see that that could be looked at as like, okay, they're wrong about that, but we believe in Jesus, we're going to heaven. And I'm not denying salvation to somebody who believes you can lose it. I'm not saying that. I am saying that it's important because it touches on a first-order doctrine. Mm -hmm. Okay, So I, recommending, I recommend this. Know those first-order doctrines cold mm -hmm. and how important they are, what their implications are, so that we can determine how important then the second-order doctrines are. Do they touch on, do they adversely affect those foundational issues? Mm. And I think of a commercial, as a matter of fact, as you say that, know those first-order doctrines cold. Uh, we have systematic theology classes here at church, right, on Wednesday nights in our yeah. Adult Education Community go. Institute. There you go. Yeah, so that's, uh, if you haven't taken those, consider mm -hmm. it. That's, that's where we that's try to lay out in great detail these first-order doctrines. Mm -hmm. So let's finish with some second-order doctrines, then, that are less weighty because they don't necessarily affect the first-order teachings of the Bible. Yeah, so I mentioned baptism, and some mm -hmm. people uh, say that baptism affects uh, your salvation. You have to be baptized in order to be a Christian. Well, that would be affecting a first-order doctrine. Mm -hmm. But if you're, you know, if you're baptizing infants, um, but you're not saying it's for salvation. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, again, it's an important issue, right? But it's not as important as mm -hmm. if you're saying it's required for for salvation. So you're saying, if you're saying, for example, baptizing infants is different than uh, what the Roman Catholic Church exactly. says, it's it's uh, kind of like a baby dedication. And that's the way I think a lot of people view it, yeah. right, like that, exactly. So it's obviously less important to them mm -hmm. than if you said it was for salvation. Or uh, something... But not unimportant. Not unimportant. Mm -hmm. uh, it actually has to do with the constitution of the church. Who's a member of the church? How do you become mm -hmm. a member of the church? Yeah. Well, the Bible would teach that that's by baptism. Mm -hmm. So if you're baptizing infants, does that mean infants become a member of the church? You know, what our friends would say is they become part of the community of faith by covenant. funny conversations with folks who hold that and the problem they have with unregenerate church membership. Right. 
yeah. Oh, and causes very big difficulties for them. It, and in church history, it's because it's caused great problems. If you want to Google something called the halfway covenant, mm, yeah, yeah. So look that up and see what kind of problems it caused. So it's not unimportant, mm-hmm. just less important than if you say it's for salvation. Something we believe, you know, we believe in a the rapture of the church. The Bible teaches that there's going to be a catching away. That's what rapture means mm-hmm. of God's people at some point in the future. We believe that that's going to happen before a period of time called the seven-year tribulation, the pre-tribulation rapture. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that is, a, that is a secondary issue. You don't have to believe that in order to still have a proper view of Christ returning, Christ establishing his kingdom, all of that. Mm-hmm. Now, again, it's not unimportant, but it's not as important. Right. It doesn't touch on first-order doctrines as far as I can tell. So here are my, my rules that I, I would recommend, some guidelines for this. Make the first-order doctrines first. Keep them first. And make those the touchstone for everything else. And then this. Understand that there should be an inverse relationship mm. between our, the degree of interpretation that goes into some doctrine we believe mm-hmm. and the degree of dogmatism with which we hold it. What I mean is, you know, the more you have to put doctrines together you have to find passages over here to correlate with passages over here which are things we need to do with for example the pre-tribulation rapture Mm -hmm. there's no passage in the scriptures that say directly that the rapture occurs before the tribulation Mm -hmm. you have to put that together yeah piecing together together. Mm -hmm. okay so that's what i mean about the degree of interpretation the more you have to do that then hold your dogmatism loosely. Yeah. And there should be an inverse relationship. The more you have to do the one, the less you should be dogmatic in the other. I think if we do that, I think we can all get along properly. That's great. Well, we have uh, we've given, given the folks a marathon. This is 51 minutes oh, wow. so far today, mm-hmm. but uh, well worth it. The content today is very helpful. Uh, the series that you recommended, I'll link to in the, okay. the uh, comments below this or the notes below this video. Um, uh, what's the difference? And uh, this content's just very important. Uh, part of it goes to knowing the difference between these first order, second order, when you understand some of those changes. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you all for tuning in and watching with us. Thank you, Pastor Ken, for lending us this uh, these insights. Just want to remind you that if you haven't already, subscribe to our uh, YouTube channel. Hit the notification bell so that you know when new episodes are coming out. And uh, then also on our Facebook page, you can uh, like this post. We try to list these out on the page and then share it with folks so that uh, they're aware of these episodes and also can be helped with them like you have been. And uh, that's it for us for this week. We will see you in the next episode. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com or text it to us at 97000.